And this is the DC Comics News Podcast, episode number 38. My name is Seth Singleton. I'll be your host today. I'm joined by Brad Falicki. Brad, can you say hi for us? Hello, everyone. And also by Kelly Gaines. How are you, Kelly? Doing good. Hi, guys. All right. We had a little bit of audio trouble. Could have been my fault. Kelly could be laughing at me, laughing with me, laughing near me. Either way. A little bit of everything. There we go. And together, we're all laughing. And we're moving right into a really great time, which is when we get to talk about all the fun things that are going on in the DC Comics world. It's not just about comics anymore, folks. In fact, we have a late-breaking discovered story, and it was Kelly who came across this and brought it to our attention. So I'm actually going to go ahead and let her take kind of the lead on this, let us know everything that was going on, and then uh, we'll go ahead and just sort of pile on with the questions and comments. Fair enough. So I, um, it was actually one of my coworkers that brought this to me because they were like, oh, you're, you're, you're the DC person. Did you hear about Jason Momoa? And they were saying that he wasn't going to be an Aquaman because he's fighting for some sort of a volcano. But what really happened is um, there is a proposal for, I believe it's a telescope to be placed on a volcano that is sacred in Hawaii. Um, so he's been a part of the protest down there and had a, a reportedly kind of staged arrest. But in any case, um, there's no official Jason Momoa is not doing Aquaman because of a volcano or anything like that. So if anyone else's co-workers gave them a heart attack last week, it's okay. He is most likely not going to be affected by that. Okay. So it seems as though this staging might have been uh, an attempt to draw some attention to the protest about the telescope and the, the, the actual nature or message of the protest itself. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what it seems <laughs> like. Okay. But, uh, uh, I mean, at least it's a good cause. Right. It's, you know, clearly one that's going to get a lot of attention based on what Jason's actions have brought about recently. Uh, Brad, what do you think about this story? Well, I think that, you know, good for him for using his celebrity to bring attention to issues that might not be on everybody's radar. So good for him. And I don't think we really had to worry that uh, he wouldn't be an Aquaman. I think Warner Brothers would probably have good enough lawyers to uh, to get him out in time to be in a possible billion dollar movie so you know good for you jason we can see why everybody uh, why everybody loves you <laughs> so, all right good on you my friend <laughs> it would well, be a it, volcano too it would well, have all I, the things for him to defend it's it's a volcano go figure <laughs> yeah i mean when we really think about it if jason's really going to get in some trouble let's have it be something epic epic and kind of like world changing event like a volcano um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> although uh you know i've been hearing about this process for a little bit one i've got some family uh in hawaii and there's been a lot of resistance to this telescope you know they they really feel that there's a you know just a question of how much does science need this highest peak compared to the sacred uh value of the land to the people who were settled there and i also know that there's a, a, a an additional amount of resistance because given its history hawaii in many ways still sees itself as an occupied or oppressed people and this only sort of like adds a little bit of salt to the wound which can you know lead to a desire to in whatever way possible as citizens of a state you know you, you have limited number of actions protesting seems to be the best way to try and get attention to what they feel is an unjust practice 
the stage protest uh, or the staged arrest that goes with it, I'm curious how they, they got that organized, uh, but clearly it's making the rounds and sadly it could be inducing mild unnecessary heart attacks. Kelly, did you have to seek medical school treatment or were you lucky <laughs> enough to just get through some breathing exercises? And uh, are you aware of any other, even if anecdotal stories about those who might have been seen in the ER or, you know, just how tragic <laughs> this is getting? Now, fortunately, I did not need medical treatment for that. Um, Clearly, you know, you're it, made of strong stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it was one of those things where it's like, wow, I really have to I have to look that up the second I'm away from my desk because that was a phone emergency. Um, but fortunately, <laughs> actual crisis averted. Glad to hear, and you know, good to remind all of us that when in doubt, before the panic attack fully sets in, doodle research get the information for yourself, kind of know what's going on for you, and then decide whether or not full-on coronary is necessary. Because given the story, it might be fully justified. And, you know, some of these stories, they, they, they take my breath away. I'm only human. And I, I'd say the rest of us are too, right? Um, I, uh, I have to say, you know, cheers to Jason for, uh, you know, raising attention, as you both pointed out. And hopefully... This can bring about the sort of change he's looking for. Um, if not, maybe there can be a compromise. We'll have to see if there's uh, more updates. But uh, more importantly, Kelly, thanks for having you here to the ground for this one so we can uh, make sure we could add it in for this week's episode and uh, keep everybody aware of just what Mr. Momoa has been doing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, moving right along, we've got a really interesting development coming out of Comic-Con, which is that the Comic-Con Museum raised over half a million dollars with the San Diego Comic-Con preview night event. Uh, according to the story, $554,516 was raised for the Comic-Con Museum during its Comic-Con International San Diego preview night back on July 24th. According to the museum, approximately 21,638 visitors came to this pop-up version of the museum or this uh, preview night. Brad, I'm going to go ahead and start things off with you. What did you think about the story overall? The amount, the amount raised, the amount of people, the museum? I, I think that it's it just very demonstrates two things to me. Is that one is just still how popular Comic-Con culture is, that it can draw that much money in and that many people in for a preview night. And I also think it attests to possibly the, you know, the lasting popularity of Batman, because one of the things that happened was Batman was, you know, inducted into the Comic-Con Hall of Fame as part of this, too. And quite frankly, I think that that museum sounds kind of cool. I'd like to see it when it finally, finally does open. I'm sure they had a lot of cool things to display at the pop-up. Kelly, what do you think? I, I mean, unfortunately, this means that I'm going to have to go to the West Coast at some point. Um, I'm really, really... It's not that bad. <laughs> it seems very nice. It's just one of those journeys I've never taken, and I'm kind of... I feel like there's a part of myself that's anxious about leaving the East Coast. But, I mean, for this museum, I would. And obviously, if it was able to make that much res revenue and bring that many people in just from being a little pop-up exhibit about Batman, um, it's, it seems like it'd be a really, really fulfilling place for comic book fans. Cook, oh my goodness, comic book fans to go. So yeah, that that is really cool and good for them for making that much money. Let's hope that even when it is larger than a Batman exhibit, it still draws that kind of crowd. But I, I can only imagine that if it includes more than Batman, that means we're going to be seeing 
you know, maybe over a million from revenue. That would be really, really fantastic. What do you think, Seth? I think it's got a great potential to definitely make that, if not more, based on what this preview pop-up was able to generate. And it appears that really from each person, not that much. When you do the math and just go ahead and divide that 554 by the 21,000, everyone put in a, a fairly reasonable amount. It's not like someone was dropping or a certain number of people were dropping 50s in there or something. It just really seems like there was just this overall sort of general, you know, value of donation that was given. But the amount that was raised clearly shows that if we can offer up a bigger museum with more exhibits, who knows? exactly how much could be raised. So I think this is a really fun story. I love that it was uh, clearly well-timed with the gathering that included, you know, Batman's induction, a hall of fame, which Brad pointed out very uh, importantly, and how the tying of those two events together might've helped really, you know, generate a lot of interest in this and maybe get some more people in there who might not have been aware that this event was available, but once they were there for the Batman event, could stick around and, and check out this preview. Uh, regarding coming to the West Coast, you know, you guys always have a friend over here. Don't forget, there's also uh, Joseph down South, who's right around the corner from it and i think between the two of us we'll try and make that strain from the east coast feel less like a, a journey far from home and more just like a walk around the block or you know <laughs> you, you know a shorter trip that it might really seem um <laughs> more it, it sounds like it'd be worth it <laughs> yeah more importantly i think what what would probably be the best part is i think uh any side of the country anywhere in the middle or any either of the ends, the comic book fans would probably widely embrace the fact that they were getting the chance to engage with somebody from a coast they might not be from or visit. And, you know, the sort of relationships that could be built, just getting to know someone who like, really? So tell me about Philadelphia. Does everyone talk like Rocky? And, you know, just sort of see what happens after that. Um, but really, uh, <laughs> I think whenever you do make the journey, whenever you both make the journey, I mean, I live up north from it. And I still haven't been to a San Diego Comic-Con. So I understand that really it's not the journey about the West Coast as much as it is going to Comic-Con and everything that comes with one, trying to get a ticket and then two, trying to make your way there. Uh, I kind of feel like it's like this this epic once in a lifetime thing, you know, like once in your life, you must go, you must find a way. <laughs> It's definitely on my bucket list for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, when there's comic cons that are thriving and growing and have expanded lists that we all dream of one day making, not all comic cons have been as successful this year. And sadly, this news has stretched to our brethren overseas. Uh, really disappointed we don't get to have our good friend Steve J. Ray able to provide a little bit of a British perspective for us on the announcement, sadly, that the London Film and Comic-Con, which was scheduled for November 23rd and 24th, has been canceled. The organizers showmasters events have attributed to the decision or attributed the decision to the upcoming Brexit and the fact that Brexit really is just a few weeks before the planned date for this Comic-Con. It was so much still up in the air. I mean, Brexit has on a few occasions not actually gone through what it was supposed to based on uh, unfortunate developments. And now it appears to have impacted this Comic-Con. Brad, I was curious about your thoughts on this one. Um, you know, I'm going to ask both you and uh, Kelly to sort of fill in for uh, our missing compatriot, Mr. Steve J. Ray. But overall, 
what was your initial response and any other responses to this article? Yeah, man, I can't wait to hear what Steve has to say about this. I'd be really interested in his input. Uh, this is one of those one of those stories that that affects comic world, but also is reflective of the bigger world out there. And I think that this is kind of an indicator of possible complications and makes the idea of Brexit a little scary because we don't we don't exactly know the effect that it's going to have in in the world and in Britain when it finally does happen, if it does happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed that this is not happening, but I just hope that that's also not an indicator of other things getting canceled and uh, the shakeup that's going to happen in the, the bigger world. And I don't know, and this would be another question to ask Steve maybe, is just how big this is. Is this like London's biggest Comic-Con? Uh, you know, is it, you know, so I, I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's not looking good. Kelly, what do you think? It is really unfortunate that, um, you know, fans aren't going to have that opportunity to meet each other and to connect. And if this is something huge, like New York Comic Con or San Diego Comic Con is here, then, you know, like, like we were saying before, that is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So that is really heartbreaking for fans. But at the same time, I have to echo you guys with, I, I wish Steve was here to, comment on it because I I mean I've never even been to the west coast so I don't really have a good scale to weigh kind of the scope of Brexit or what it's impacting so to me it's yes I'm very heartbroken for the fans but I can't really say definitively whether or not it's a good decision on the part of the uh the actual organizers um but my hope would be that fans still have an opportunity to travel somewhere and meet each other and you know get all of those fun comic-con experiences that you know we're going to enjoy and do enjoy here so hopefully i mean i I, again i would just hope that it doesn't actually affect um you know wider cancellations and the wider comic book fandom but it's it's an it's an area i would say i'm definitely not an expert in uh seth what do you think i'm going to have to agree that my expertise is sorely lacking in this regard I am intrigued by the fact that it's been in existence for a total of 14 years. And I noted this one little detail in the article, which mentioned that the event has boasted attendance of up to 98,000 at its most recent 2018 event. I'm not sure if you guys know how that measures up with what the numbers might normally be at a New York Comic Con or something similar. I, I haven't checked to see what the totals numbers were for something like SDCC as well. Well, I think the the biggest number that New York had was 150,000. There was, I mean, this is off subject a little bit, but there was a little bit of controversy about that from what I remember because they were counting each badge swipe, not individuals. People coming in and back out might have been counted twice. So, I mean, that's... Yeah, that's something I noticed at the... uh, I was at the Game Developers Conference here in San Francisco back in February, and... You were given a badge, and on numerous occasions, staff would ask if they could scan and check your bag to like make sure that they had recorded the year attendance. And after a while, I would let them know, like, I've actually been scanned three or four times since I've been here, and I haven't left today. And it would sort of be like an acknowledgement that, yes, I've been scanned, and I don't know if you guys want to keep scanning me, if that's going to mess up your numbers. So, Brad, I appreciate you bringing up that point, because that's something I hadn't uh, really considered as far as what the, the numbers might compare with. But 98,000 compared to that 150, even if it might have been partially inflated, 
puts this Comic Con up there on a you know a level that that might be seen as you know fairly important. Kelly, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I um, I mean it's funny because I went to a convention in Philadelphia a couple of months ago, and actually the exact opposite, where not once the entire time I was there did anyone check to see if I had a badge or a spanded, nothing, the, the whole time. So it's, it's really funny to think that, you know, in New York, there I know they're a lot stricter with the security and getting in and out, and I'm, I'm going to New York Comic Con this year, so I'm kind of hoping it's not that sort of crazy, you have to keep stopping and giving someone your badge, but that, that, that is really interesting. I don't know how that would, you'd think they would count the actual sale of tickets more so than the swipes of the badge. Yeah, that's an intriguing curiosity about how they track metrics and, and exactly where these numbers are, are being tabulated and how they're being confirmed or cross-referenced or anything else like that. Interesting. Um, but, you know, just based on the fact that 98,000 sounds like a lot of people to me, overall, this just sounds like an unfortunate development that's, uh, you know, just one of many complications that we're seeing come about because of Brexit. It's unfortunate that it's going to affect Comic-Con fans this way. And um, hopefully this is something that can be resolved, I'm hoping, within one year so that they can have um, this event again. But also, I'd be intrigued at some point to follow up on whether or not this is just the first domino, you know, and this would be interesting to catch up with Steve when we get him back on the next time, just to sort of see uh, what it is that might also be on the horizon that Brexit could be eventually affecting that we can keep an eye out for, you know, for upcoming announcements, because that that could be a really interesting story as it continues to develop. Um, Unfortunate. But clearly, if this is just one of the first impacts by Brexit on comic fans, it it stands to reason it might not be the last. However, sometimes it's good to just pivot, shift right into a whole other category of news topics. And on the movie news, we actually have a really interesting process story that I got a kick out of. And it's about how Joaquin Phoenix sort of explains his method for creating a unique individual and, well, depending on your opinion, um, very startling, if not more extreme reaction, so, to this Joker laugh that he's created. Brad, what did you think about this story about the laugh? Uh, What were your thoughts overall? The Joker has become kind of like Hamlet in a way, in that it's one of those holy grails for actors to be able to play that role. And I think that anybody who gets that role is going to try to go out of their way to bring their own spin into the character. And I think that Joaquin Phoenix, I think that his use of uh, he he, he um, studied compulsive like laughing disorder for people that can't that kind of can't stop laughing. And I think that makes perfect sense for Joker. And just it's again, it's one of those things that just makes me more excited every day to see this movie. I mean, I my usually when I go into movies, my expect I try to keep my expectations low so that I'm not disappointed. This one, it seems like every day my expectations are getting higher and higher. And at this point, I'm just hoping it delivers. But you know, I, I he's a great actor, and I think that he knows what he's doing. Kelly, what do you think? I I mean, that is the most terrifying character study I think I've ever heard of. Um, I 
I, I feel like it'd be extremely unpleasant to listen to recordings of that type of laughter and kind of having to try to understand the process of someone ba- breaking down psychologically and what that actually sounds like. Um, but as, as terrifying as it is, I think back to the Heath Ledger Joker and that he was getting really into character and getting, you know, kind of weird and scary with it. And I think if anything, it's an indication that we're going to get a really strong Joker. And I've, I've heard semi-mixed things back and forth about how people expect the movie to go and if they think it'll actually be a good Joker story. But I still like the fact that the creative team seems to have a focus on telling a good story more so than just, we need to tell a Joker story, but we're going to make a good movie based off this character. It does it does make me more hopeful, but also a, a little bit frightened. Uh, Seth, what do you think? Well, I'm intrigued with what you uh, guys have both brought up, which is the idea of just how horrifying um, this this not only laughter is, but this process must have been to sort of tap into this. Uh, the the whole terminology, the pseudo bulbar effect, just sounds unpleasant to pronounce off the tongue, and it appears unpleasant, and the process sounds completely unpleasant. Out of curiosity, just for a little divergent, have either of you seen the Silence of the Lambs? Yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so I've always been intrigued by. Do you know who Scott Glenn is? Are you familiar with him? No, he's, I don't think so. he's the actor who plays Agent Starling's sort of senior. Yeah. He's the one wearing glasses and always the really nice suits. And I, I was looking at this IMDb note about that movie. And apparently at one point, Scott Glenn was working closely with an FBI agent. And the agent had audio recordings of torture victims as held by a, a criminal. And he let Glenn listen to him after Glenn like persuaded him to let him do it. And afterwards, Scott Glenn admitted that he wished he'd never done that. He actually admits that there was a, a part of his own innocence that was lost after he listened to those recordings. And it really intrigues me how, you know, Kelly, you brought up the idea of how we've seen this effect from actors who have embraced all of the darker parts that it must be delved into if you're going to play a character like the Joker and the effect that it's had on the actor. And uh, I'm curious um, about a couple of things. One, because I really think in order to achieve that, you know, you have to find a way into this sort of dark madness that is the Joker. And yet, in order to do it, you have to do it in a way that unlocks the darkness within you, right? And somehow Joaquin Phoenix figured out that the laugh was going to be his way in. And that the more he observed this sort of disturbing process and this condition, the more he was able to unlock unlock that sort of darkness again that that sort of evil that sort of uh twisted persona that maybe we all try and keep under wraps and instead he found a way to tap into or unlock um but the approach is very much like something you would expect from a dedicated actor i'm not sure i'm not smart enough when it comes to acting to know if it falls into like method or not but i'm really intrigued about how Like everybody needs a way into a subject in order to kind of like get inside of it and embrace it and make a connection that's personal. And using this laugh sounds like a really ingenious way to do it. But clearly, as you both pointed out, uh, a painful one. And, uh, you know, I I can only imagine that the value we'll see on screen is going to be worth it. But, you know, it's, it's also a testament to the commitment of an actor who says, okay, how far am I willing to go in order to try and be the most authentic version of the Joker possible. 
And now that I've been rambling enough about that, I'll let anybody chime in or just tell me to move on to the next subject because I could just go down the rabbit hole on this apparently way too easily. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've been thinking about scary laughs in my head and I officially am a little bit terrified. It's, It's pretty late at night to be thinking about that kind of laughter. (laughs) <laughs> okay, okay, worth pointing out that this is a later time of day for us to be recording this one, so maybe the creepy crawlies and the shadows could have an effect on our responses. Anything <laughs> else from you, Brad, before we shift gear? No, I mean, I think you guys covered everything uh, okay. you know, at this point, let's just, uh, I kind of, but I kind of want to be scared uh, in this movie. <laughs> I kind of like the Joker that's, that's scary, but that's just me. <laughs> well, uh, clearly, no matter what form of the Joker we're going to see in this telling, it's going to be one that has the potential to terrify. And if this is just a glimpse, well, I can only imagine just what else remains to be revealed. You know, I yeah, just would add this, too, is that we're talking about him being terrifying. But since he is the focus of this movie, I think, it, you know, and, and from the trailer, too, I think as scary as he's going to be, we are also going to sympathize and relate. And that could be maybe a side of the character that we haven't seen, certainly not on film. So I know, like that idea. I like the idea of rooting for the Joker, like wanting him to create the crazy laugh and then watching him use it on other people and being <laughs> like, go ahead, dude, break out you crazy. Come on, man. Like, you've been getting screwed by everybody for so long. Time to just get them however you can. And if crazy's your way, well, go crazy, baby. You know, like I'm, I really think you've tapped into something there. I really think it's going to be something where it's terrifying, but we're, we're going to embrace it. We're going to be like, oh, dude, get your Joker laugh. Tap into your dark. <laughs> yeah. some forest clowns. What's that? There are no more forest clowns. I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I you know can't. What, I don't know more of those. <laughs> you know, real quick stipulation. Kelly states no forest clowns. And we just like to go ahead and respect the wishes of, of those who stated them. So no forest clowns. <laughs> now, granted, while this great revelation and the ability to see more revealed from Joker is a great opportunity, there are sadly reminders that some things which we hoped for, some things which may have, you know, possibly been wonderful, never actually do get revealed. And that's an interesting story that we're looking at in this article, which speaks with Adam Brody. You might recognize him as one of those amazing Shazam figures at the end of the movie Shazam. And if you haven't seen it yet, he's someone to look for. But this wasn't going to be, well, initially, this was not his first entrance into the DC world of films. Adam Brody was set to play one of the main characters, The Flash, on a version of the Justice League that was set to be directed by George Miller, who you might have seen more recently in the uh, Mad Max movie that came out just a few years ago. And this story points to how that movie had even more of an impression on Adam Brody's feelings about what the loss of George Miller's Justice League means for fans of comics for fans of great cinema for well brad i'm gonna let you take it away from there my friend what are your thoughts about this article adam brody and uh, george miller it's a shame that this didn't come to fruition even though it was at a time when george miller had kind of fallen off you know and, and you know but mad max Fury road is one of my favorite movies of the past 
decade for sure. It's one of my favorites. I would have loved to have seen his vision come to the Justice League. And I think for DC movies overall, had they made a Justice League in 2007 or 2008, um, the landscape would have looked a lot different for DC films than it does at the moment, because that would have been before Iron Man, before the whole MCU. DC could have led that charge maybe at that point, and that would have been interesting to see. I mean, not that we don't have great DC movies recently because of it, but I just think that we would have been in a different, you know, a different type of DC movie world at this point. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I have to agree. I, I mean, anything would have been better than the Justice League movie that we got. Whenever a story comes out about something that could have happened with it, I'm always, I would say, just distantly forlorn, kind of like those uh, paintings of someone staring out the window and like waiting for their husband to come home from sea or something. I just, I, I wish it had been better. I wish better things had happened to make that movie. And I really also liked uh, Mad Max Fury Road. To know that someone who is a really good filmmaker who could make a movie like that almost made the Justice League is kind of heartbreaking. And I also feel very bad for um, Adam Brody in the sense that he missed out on his big break. And you're right, too, that with that being before Iron Man and before any of the real push for the Marvel Cinematic Universe happened, I, I think DC fans a lot of times tend to go more on faith. We believe in the characters Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, all of that. And so that's why we keep coming back. Even when the movies are terrible, even when the books don't land, even when they have to relaunch the entire universe multiple times, we stick around because we have faith in the characters. So it would have been really nice to, if, if Justice League had come out then before the Marvel Universe with a punch, I think we'd be looking at a very different type of comic book fandom right now. Uh, Seth, what do you think? I really feel like uh, you both really keyed on something important, which was about the timing of this and how so much occurred after it didn't happen, especially when in comparison to the MCU or Marvel Cinematic Universe without trying to get all into our, uh, these are my capital letters I put together. When it comes to this, you know, concept of a missed opportunity, it really feels like you know, this is something that clearly this guy is thankful that he's had an opportunity to uh, get back into the the films. But it's also like, hi. So 11 years later, I finally get the chance to do what I really could have done if all these things hadn't come, you know, into conflict. I'm really intrigued by the title Justice League Mortal. That really caught my attention. And I'm also intrigued by the fact that this was caused by the 2007-2008 writer's strike, which was a really interesting development because it wasn't the first time that the writer's strike, you know, had been pointed at as being a, a big complication for a project. You know, it was considered to be one of the downfalls for things like Heroes and a few other projects. But this was one that I really kind of felt was, I don't know, a, yeah, a, buried, a buried headline. Yeah, that writer's strike really had a lot bigger impact than people realize, I think. Uh, a lot of things were shortened or ended. Uh, and it's just it's too bad. Yeah. And it was just really amazing to hear that this was one of the consequences. But to be honest, I didn't know about this movie before this. Um, and it seemed like, you know, there was maybe some conversation around that time, but it quickly got swallowed up in so many other stories that were coming out. 
And then also, I mean, we're all writers here, guys. It's really interesting to know that, you know, so much blame has been placed on this strike. And yet the things that the writers were fighting for were about the things we're experiencing now in the future, about whether or not writers would be compensated for work that's used for television, for streaming, for movies that are later streaming, what streaming rights work out as far as pay equity. And this was actually a really important conversation at a pivotal time when the industry was about to move into streaming in in a way we really hadn't predicted yet. Um, so it's really intriguing that, you know, they had to, you know, make a stand for the things that they felt were important to fight for. Um, and clearly we're experiencing what they were looking into the future and worried about. And yet, man, the, the consequences of that fight are things that I feel like they're still being blamed for. And this is just another example, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, you stand up for something and not everybody's going to love you for it. So I really feel like this is a challenge because I, I also feel like the, the writer's strike was a long time ago in some people's mind. Eleven years ago, a lot's happened since then. And exactly how important it actually was, I think you really pointed out something of value there, Brad. When you look at it, this was actually a much bigger deal than it might have gotten the kind of attention it should have at the time. Yeah, yeah. We lost a Justice League Mortal movie, but we gained Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, so... (laughs) (laughs) I kind of love that movie a little. (laughs) You know, it's it's because of Dr. Horrible that I think Joss Whedon was able to keep his name up there long enough that we wanted him as the guy who ended up taking over Avengers and... I think we kind of believed he would be the guy who could maybe save Justice League when things were getting really squirrely in production. Um, You know, so, yeah, I'm going to tip my hat to that one as well. You know, we lost some, we gained some. In the end, who's to say exactly who came out the winner or or what would have been the better benefit? It's not like all bad things came out of the writer's strike, right? You know what, though? I I still have a problem with Joss Whedon, and I love so much of what he's done. But the Batgirl thing with him has bothered me for, I guess it's been years now. The fact that he backed out of working on the Batgirl movie because he said he just didn't know what story to tell, or he didn't think there was a story to tell. Which, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's, I mean, it's it's Batgirl. It's Barbara Gordon. She's Commissioner Gordon's daughter. She's like one of the best fighters in Gotham. There, there's so much to work with with her. So that still bothers me a little. And I get if, you know, he kind of got maybe skittish about DC as a whole and backed up, but that that excuse just has, still bothers me. Well, unfortunately, you know, by the time he took over Justice League, that wasn't the only problem Joss Whedon had going on. There were a lot of rumors swirling around about infidelity and, and the way he treated certain people on his projects, and suddenly these were things all coming to a head. Um, clearly, he also had some sort of thing going on regarding DC products, because if that's the only way he could see Batgirl, well, I have a concern as well, because... I mean, let's start with the fact that you have the relationship between a father and daughter and what it means to keep secrets between those two. If you can't tell me there's a compelling story already there and then throw in the crime fighting and everything that makes Batgirl so amazing, I have a real problem with your ability to tell stories, (laughs) especially when you made your name with Buffy. Like your whole purpose in life was to make Buffy a valuable enough character that we cared about you as somebody we wanted to see you work on other projects. Brad, I feel like you got something to add. I was going to say that that strikes me as laziness. Um, You know, and that's another thing going back to the popularity of Batman is I think that that's one of the things that really draws people to the character is the supporting cast and the villains. And there are so many stories you can tell within that 
pantheon of characters. There's no excuse. <laughs> yeah, at some point, it's no just, you know, exactly. So clearly, for whatever reason, as they say out here on the West Coast, he got scurred. And then after <laughs> he got scurred, uh, he wasn't trying to do more about it. But uh, we can talk more about Justice League and the things that didn't happen. Or we can talk about the things that we know are coming. And thankfully, great directors are already teasing out for us. Now, James Gunn maybe maybe has not been called a tease. I'm not one to call names. However, he does appear to be doing a bit of teasing when it comes to the character King Shark and his upcoming work on Suicide Squad. The maybe sequel reboot, we're not really sure, but we're really excited to see it movie. And I wanted to get some response from Brad and Kelly about, well, this story about the uh, continuation of the teasing of King Shark, which I'm just going to ask. You can both decide whether or not you want to answer. Does it seem like a good idea to tease something like a shark? And should you tease the one that goes by King of Sharks? Just going to go ahead and leave it at that. Brad, what's your thoughts, my friend? <laughs> I, I think that personally, I want to see the character in the movie. So if, if he's just teasing us to throw us off the scent. I think that that's cruel. <laughs> so I think at this point that somehow the character's got to be got to be in the movie. So uh, we'll see. I'm just kind of hoping. I'm kind of torn because you know I don't want it to be CGI, but then I'm thinking to do this, to do the character justice, it would almost have to be at this point. So yeah, I, I just want to see him in the movie at this point. Kelly, what do you think? It's funny. I'm, I'm now picturing someone in a rubber shark mask or like yeah, right. that, that left shark costume from, from whatever <laughs> VMAs that was. And I'm never going to get that out of my head. But I, I Looking at the, the entire King Shark, whether he will or what, and you guys know already how I feel about maybe news. My issue with this is that he has made such an effort at teasing this character. And, and nobody, when they heard that Suicide Squad was being relaunched, I don't think there's a single person who went, oh, King Shark better be in this. But now there are people who are invested and who are hoping that King Shark is in it. So if he's doing this yeah, just to tease us, right? Like, that's that's not okay. That's not... It's, so King Shark has to be in this movie, and I'm hoping it's a good costume, because now I'm just picturing left shark, and I'm, I'm all worried. <laughs> that's what do you think. Well, now, actually, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I want to see the rubber mask. I actually want it to be a cheap King Shark thing, and I want it to be a guy who thinks he's King Shark, but he's really just a guy in a cheap rubber mask who calls him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want this guy to be like the Batman villain that we really thought we understood and or DC villain who has now just sadly been misappropriated. <laughs> and just as twisted, you know. And Not then it's weird. What's that? Not even a shark. That'd be hilarious. Exactly. <laughs> Except at one moment where suddenly in the movie he like takes on the spirit of the shark and he's like, "I told you I would wear my shark on the inside" or something like that. You know what I mean? And we're all like, "Whoa, what?" <laughs> but otherwise, uh, tease me, tease me, tease me. At some point though, I'm gonna warn you. That whether it's my French bulldog or my pit bull, you can dangle meat in front of them to a certain point, And at some point, they're just going to jump for it. And if they're hungry, they might nip your fingers. So I'm not saying fans have sharpened their teeth <clears throat> or might be reacting to this like chum in the water, if we mentioned on a few occasions. But I do feel that if you play with fire and you don't deliver, you always put yourself at the risk, as they say. So accurately getting burned now in this case it's more like getting bitten but I, I do feel that the the teasers have to be leading to something now 
unless it's just a complete misdirection. And the only thing left for me is crazy guy in a shark costume and just like <laughs> making us laugh until he makes us suddenly take him seriously. I don't know how everybody feels about that, but it could be, it could be interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I mean, the CGI for the King Shark on The Flash was decent for television, which means I know they've got the money to do a good one on, on screen. But if they do, recognize that we've seen a lot of CGI that tries to be tough, tough cool, menacing, and maybe it'd be better if we just saw a CGI that did something smart. Just a little smart, a little different. I don't care if it's bed knobs and broomsticks kind of Disney twist to it. Like, give me something that makes me think about this character differently. Otherwise, I'm trying to use my imagination, which always costs more than your production value. And that generally leaves me a little more disappointed than you're aware of. I don't know how that that hits with you guys. (laughs) However, that's not the only movie that's getting a bit of attention. And also... Catching my curiosity, one that really sort of makes me wonder what you guys think, which is this new announcement coming out about Birds of Prey and how Chad Stahelski is going to be overseeing the uh, reshoots. I cannot say, but I'm pretty sure I butchered that, but I'll let you guys try and pronounce it if you want, see if you can do me better or wrong. Brad, what do you think about this idea about bringing in uh, new talent to uh, oversee the reshoots? shoots does this mean uh, something for you? i'm gonna leave the pronunciation like you had it and just say that that's uh that's what it is and we're gonna go with it uh, <laughs> you, you, uh man i mean if you're gonna have somebody direct some action scenes for you it should be him because anybody who's seen john wick knows this guy knows how to direct action and you know it, it's interesting because the john wick is so over the top violent that he may have to tone down a little bit of that violence in the Birds of Prey if it's going to be PG-13. So it, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see his his spin on this. So I think, yeah, I think he'll have something to add. He'll have a little spice and flavor to add to the whole thing. Kelly, what do you think? I'm going to just call him Chad. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, this announcement initially made me really nervous. Um, the I, I hear reshoots and I just think, oh, God, they messed something up and they have to go back and fix it. But it is a part of the actual process in Hollywood. And he's a very, very good action director. So if this means that they're just bringing on the best of the best, even for normal scheduled reshoots, then I actually have, I think, a little more faith in this movie than I did before. So I'm I'm still hopeful. I'm still excited and as long as it's not like Justice League or the other Suicide Squad and it just builds off of the enthusiasm of the cast and the creative team and the obviously very talented people working on it, I, I'm pumped for this movie. Uh, Seth? Wow, well, you guys have really brought some interesting ideas in my head with this one because I had the same initial response, which was, oh, God, what went wrong? Why are they trying to fix it now? And that's always a concern. But really hearing what you guys were saying brought up an interesting idea for me which is you know a lot of times we we forget that maybe these movies are being made similarly to how we see comics being made and you know what makes a great penciler is when you have a great inker who can accentuate what you're trying to do initially with your pencils but what only an inker can do when they come in and and tighten it up does that make sense um so 
I'm kind of intrigued by this idea because if it was part of a plan, then that would be a really interesting approach to have one person set the tone one way and then for the reshoots have somebody come through and say, okay, I like what you've done here, but like any great editor, now I'm going to come in and I'm just going to clean, tighten, and also show a couple of areas where through just a little expansion, we can do a little bit more in the same amount of time. And, you know, it, it takes a really interesting eye to do that. And now I'm actually really intrigued about that being part of a process, actually like a planned process. You know what I mean? Where you you know you're going to set a time, side time for reshoots. But instead of just knowing that that's going to happen and hoping that you can cut it short because, you know, it's about less or fewer mistakes, but instead saying, hey, you know what? Mistakes happen. The best part is, is when we do the reshoots, we're also going to do this. And we're going to have somebody come in who can see what we've done as a whole and then redo some parts to just make it pop, which changes my kind of expectation and also my feelings about this announcement. And uh, I got to thank both of you for doing that. Listening to both of your descriptions really sort of built this idea in my head. And actually, it gives me more promise uh, that they've learned from the mistakes of Justice League reshoots and Suicide Squad reshoots. And this is all part of a great plan that we're going to be thankful for that's my hope <laughs> but it's all because and, of you two yeah well one oh, thing i'd like you. to add one thing that makes me less nervous because I, I i initially had that reaction too that oh no they're doing reshoots that can't be good but uh chad's company has been involved with the movie um since principal photography so that makes me feel better that it wasn't like they had to bring him in he was kind of already involved from the beginning so Right. That makes me hopeful. Yeah. So, and yeah. and that really encourages me with this whole idea of like, you know, the penciler and the inker about the idea of having one guy doing one and another guy doing another on top. Kelly, I, I'm not sure if I cut you off there. I felt like you were going to add something as well. No, no, I, I was just okay. saying true. Yeah, that's it's, it's a good point. He's if he's in from the beginning, then, you know, it's it's not that they've done a terrible thing and they're trying to fix it now, which is good. That's that's good news for us. <laughs> agreed um and you know what if we're gonna go ahead and step away from the movie news let's go ahead and add on that sort of good feeling like hey this is a good point to end on and a good chance for us to step away for just a moment take a quick break for an ad before we move into tv and streaming news thanks for sticking with us just while we take this quick break provide you with a little information and then come back with more starting with the tv and streaming news and moving along at the end there for our favorite comic book news coming at you thanks for hanging with us we'll be right back hey there everybody this is josh rayner editor-in-chief of dc comics news are you planning on heading to wizard world comic con sometime this year well we have a great deal for you if you are planning to do so you can get 10 percent off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's D-C-N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Back to you guys. And that was it. It seemed like just a blink, and we're back. This is the DC Comics News Podcast. This is episode number 38, and I am Seth Singleton, your host, joined by Brad Flicky and Kelly Gaines, and we're moving right into the TV and streaming news. 
And this uh, breaking announcement that a trailer that was just made available and follow-up announcement from Stephen Amell is confirming that a very popular and original villain from the show is going to be returning. I could tell you about it, but I think I'm going to go ahead and let Brad sort of fill in these details. Brad, what did you think about the announcement of who's coming back and what this character means for this final season of Arrow? Uh, he's such a fun actor, John Berman. Uh, everything he does is is so much fun to watch. So from that point, I'm, I'm excited to see him come back. And I always liked his character on Arrow. Um, and I think it's going to be an interesting to bring him back to help kind of, you know, it's like going full circle, really. And uh, a lot of good shows do that. They come full circle in the end. So, um, yeah, I think he's going to be a good addition to this final season. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I actually I really do enjoy him as an actor. I haven't seen a ton of Arrow, but I've seen him in other things. And he has really good energy. He's a lot of fun. He seems to be able to bring whatever character he's playing to a, a really grounded place without having to it's he's not one of those actors where you look at him and you see um oh well it's you don't see the previous character characters that he's played um so i i think it's a good idea and i actually really enjoy it when shows bring back somebody from a previous season to kind of expand on a plot point or you know with it being the final season bring it home i hope they don't i've turned into a verb, but once upon a time it, in the sense that they'll bring someone back for 30 seconds in a clip just to kind of be like, hey, they're here. Um, so I hope it's not that kind of a situation, but it's it seems like a good thing that he's back. Uh, Seth, what do you think? Well, now I'm worried. No. Um, <laughs> I feel that there's a certain value in which Arrow producers and the team have placed on this character. What I've seen about John Barrowman actually reminds me a lot of what I always loved about a young Willem Dafoe. This ability to just sort of like, yeah, okay. And you don't know if it's crazy or if it's brilliant or if it's just, what else do you expect me to do with a line like that? But the way Barrowman just has had this ability to become Merlin and in doing so... He, he really showed some of those qualities that the comics, you know, did a, you know, they were able to do more with because of how the storytelling process is involved. But something about the way that Merlin always, he always survived. He's that, that bad penny. He's that, that, that rat that you swore went down with the sinking ship and somehow is clinging to a piece of driftwood that's on fire. And by no earthly means should it be a, a way that he's going to survive. And yet he does. Sometimes he loses a limb. Sometimes uh, things happen. But I feel like the idea of bringing him around for this full circle and maybe instead of that, you know, unfortunate once upon a time possibility, instead, maybe having him do that sort of like look back that 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 remember way back when when I did that thing that you thought you did. Guess what? We're not done here would be a really nice way of just sort of, you know, paying a sort of tribute to all the fans who've been around since, you know, these two were first squaring off. But also I feel like this is an opportunity to maybe show how this was a guy who's been involved with groups like League of Assassins and Random. I feel like his his scope has always been so big and yet we never knew just what it was he was actually involved with um, and who he knew. 
And I feel like there's some sort of corner of the, the DC universe that he could draw into this storytelling that we could really benefit not only for this last season, but we could use to carry over into other characters. Like he's had that sort of international recognition, whether he was the guy who took over the league or whatever his other relationships were. But I feel like there's something he can bring to this story from the big scale that is going to seem huge until crisis hits. And, and that's something that I'm really curious to see how they end up playing it out because he never shows up without some sort of evil punishment and some sort of nefarious plan. And that's just kind of what I always expect from him. So that, that that's really what this said to me was like, oh, wow, what a fun actor. And oh, man, what could this possibly mean? Any other thoughts from you, from uh, you, Brad or uh, Kelly, on that? No, I think you summed it up. Okay. All right. Sometimes I do some summing. Sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes I need help. However, I think everyone has their own summation of the most recent Batwoman teaser and the introduction of Alice. And sometimes when I hear the degree of understanding that Steve J. Ray expresses about Batwoman and Alice, I... I wonder also if this is something we're going to wonder about just what he would say in response to this story however brad i'm going to allow you to have not only the opportunity to tell us what you think you might even if you want include what you think steve would have to add about this story what did you think about this batman teaser and the introduction to uh alice and maybe some little clues that you know longtime fans would recognize that newer viewers uh are hopefully going to discover you know, I, I'm i not sure what Steve would say, but I know that we are both big fans of um, Batwoman Elegy. And, you know, I, I think we were both thrilled when we found out that that Alice was going to be the villain in the first season. Because it seems like they were going back to that as the source material. And, uh, you know, this teaser very felt felt in that same vein. And it was, it was nice to see a different character. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of Batwoman and how cool she is. And it, it's kind of nice to see, uh, you know, something else, see, see the villain now. So, you know, it's, it's, it's looking good. I'm kind of excited for the show. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I, um, I, I would have to assume and hope that somewhere Steve is doing his happy dance into a, a large circle in his floor. Um, it's, it seems like a really good teaser. I, Honestly, it seemed kind of short and almost like it didn't give a lot. And we know already that it's Alice. She, you know, derives most of her mannerisms and her whole theme from the actual Alice in Wonderland books. Um, but the good thing about this teaser, I think, is that if someone watching it who maybe not be or may not be a comic book fan is a fan of Alice in Wonderland, they might recognize, you know, the rabbit and the the liquid getting poured back and forth. That kind of imagery that is very, very classic to Alice in Wonderland. And from my experience, people like Alice in Wonderland. If even if someone has never actually read the read the book, if they've seen the Disney movie or even if they haven't, ninety percent of the time if you walk down a, a hallway in a college dorm, you're gonna see at least five rooms that have some sort of Alice in Wonderland something in it. So I think it actually might be a really good way to get people interested in Batwoman and get them watching the show and maybe even interested in the comics afterwards. So yeah, my, my hope would be that other people have seen it and if they weren't interested in that woman already are interested now. Seth, what do you think? 
I think those are some really great points. Brad, I'm going to be completely honest. When you and Steve start talking about Elegy, I just sit back. Um, it's something that I was lucky enough to try and like just charge through. And I really enjoyed the experience, but I, I believe that there was something different about the way you guys had a chance to interact with the material. And maybe it was issue by issue. Maybe it was part of a graphic novel. I kind of piecemealed it over a couple of months through some digital collections while I was trying to figure out how to, you know, find old copies of the issues and, and how to, you know, just sort of keep up. So whenever you guys tear into it, you know, it's kind of like listening to him and uh, Joe start raving about Hush. Like, I, I feel like there's those who embrace certain storylines to a degree that when they hear someone else, it's like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's like, sure, I could get in the middle of that conversation or I can just sit back like a fly on the wall and just soak it all in. So uh, that's why I, I was kind of curious as I was asking you to, to chime in. I was like, you know, you and Steve have talked about this a few times. I kind of almost feel like you might have a shot of saying what he might be thinking. However, I'm not really sure that it would have measured up to anything like the picture we all now have, thanks to Kelly, who put it in our heads of Steve once again, dancing around in his house, falling floor <laughs> after floor after stomping through layer after layer. <laughs> And, and finding himself at some point embedded in his basement saying this isn't his fault. We did this to him. Um, keeping all that in mind, uh, you know, I, I want to just add on, Kelly, I thought you brought up a really great idea of how, you know, this is a character who bases her uh, pathos and, and so much of her thinking on Alice in Wonderland. And that's something that's really an identifier for a lot of people. It's interesting that you mentioned how many people might be aware of it, too, because as I thought of it suddenly, one, I love the Disney movie. Um, I still think it's amazing. If you put it on right now, I would happily sit down and just be like, shh, this is classic. <laughs> Shut up. We're watching this. Hey, 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 I can get into a whole political thing about Disney, too. But right now, this is shh, <laughs> this is Alice. Secondly, the idea of it, it really it really is one of those great stories that that are why I've always loved the idea of what's on the other side of the mirror. What's it like to travel to a different world? And it's something that was referenced as recently and kind of impressively. So uh, in a major film like the matrix, you know, this concept of through the mirror and taking the different pills and how much of, of that whole beginning of that movie was built around Alice in Wonderland or Alice before and Alice afterwards. Um, so this idea of, of making that connection through this character, even though it's this really short teaser, really smart points, guys. I, I really enjoyed those, uh, you know, those insights because it really made me think about this in a, a little bit different way than I might have initially. And one of the best parts about a, a conversation is the discovery. Um, thank you both. I really appreciated that. Um, and Steve, I, I really can't say what you would say, except can you picture a grown man dancing around as an apartment? Mm -hmm. And we already came. We're already there, buddy. We know that as you're listening to this, you're dancing around right now. Not saying you have to because you're listening to it. I just know that you are. And with that, unfortunately, great sort of, hey, look what's coming we have to follow up with, uh, hey, look what's no longer on the horizon with the announcement that Sci-Fi is not only canceling Krypton, but a planned spinoff for Lobo. However, I was intrigued that the story immediately began looking to other DC products who have found new homes, new lives, new possibilities through new platforms. Brad, uh, what was your uh, thoughts, responses, not only to this news, but also from what I felt was a kind of uh, optimistic approach from this article? Yeah, I definitely think that's a silver lining. 
that they are shopping in around. So we may not have seen the last of it. Um, you know, it, as much as I like the show, uh, you know, I, and, and, you know, I think it was worth watching just for the Brainiac alone. Uh, but I, I can see why it would have a niche appeal and not get a whole lot of ratings. It's not your typical Superman-like story. You, you know, uh, your average Superman fan wouldn't necessarily respond to it in the way that us comic book readers would. It's got a lot of more more intrigue than than your normal Superman story and things like that. It's a lot more, in a way, it's a lot more nuanced and political. Um, you know, it was, I heard it once described as Game of Thrones on Krypton, and that was, <laughs> and that's kind of what we got, so it's not necessarily super surprising that it never really caught on, but I really do hope that it finds a, a new home, uh, whether it be on DC streaming service or wherever it may end up, I just hope it ends up somewhere. You know, and as far as Lobo, honestly, I, I never thought that that was going to see the light of day. Uh, I thought that this would kind of happen. I just don't think that Lobo's a character that has aged well. Uh, that's that's just my opinion. Uh, he feels <laughs> stuck in the '90s, really. He just—I was never that much big of a Lobo fan. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I um, and actually, Brad, it's funny because I never considered the fact that people who maybe aren't that into comic books or don't, you know, kind of invest themselves in the full story behind a character like Superman might look at a show like Krypton where for us it's fun to think oh well you know what was life on Krypton like what was this classic superhero story from another lens or you know another piece of their world looking at it for us is kind of fun but if you're just a a casual super you know Superman fan or any sort of superhero fan it may not be as interesting to think well what would what would Game of Thrones on on Krypton be like um and Actually, also going off what you said with Lobo, I did think that was a really interesting choice for a spinoff series. I remember thinking he was funny when I saw him in the uh, Justice League Unlimited cartoons as a kid. But other than that, and I've actually picked up from like 50 cent bins and, and that sort of thing at comic book stores, I've picked up a few older um, Lobo stories or stories that Lobo shows up in, and he's just not that exciting to me. It's He's he's funny and i think that there is most likely a a way to do him in kind of a modern light but yeah there's there's just not much i i don't think i would seek out lobo as a character that i'm like yes i want to see that show um so my hope would be that you know if if they are finding another home for krypton maybe reconsider or or maybe maybe lobo doesn't have to happen at least right now Uh, what about you seth I'm uh, I'm going to go ahead and just follow up on some great things I thought you both point, brought up and see if they, they feed into any original thoughts I, I might have tried to compose just because, you know, the points that you're bringing up deserve so much attention. First off, read the optimistic note, the idea that they're shopping it around and that they've seen from examples of things like Lucifer that you can find a second home. It's a possibility. Um, and I'm going to respond to what you both said, which was, I was really surprised when Lobo got the spinoff. It seemed like it was like he appeared in one episode and suddenly everybody's talking spinoff. And I didn't see where it was coming from. But I want to follow up on a couple things as well regarding the idea of Krypton and its ability to grow an audience and be compelling and engaging. Um, what was interesting for me was this seemed to be... Uh, 
a project that came about after the success of something like Gotham. And I was curious what you both thought about that idea. Um, but also that unlike Gotham, it, it was set, you know, almost so many generations before Superman, where it seemed like Gotham was about building up to Batman. This was so much removed from Superman that it was it felt like so much more of a distant approach. And yet also the things that we end up seeing about Krypton were so very different than much of what I'd seen in my limited exposure to Krypton in comics without having read uh, a comic specifically about Krypton or life on Krypton or anything like that. This seemed to really focus on the concept of the caste systems and the disparity. And that was something that wasn't always something that I connected with Krypton. So I was just curious uh, what you guys you know, thought about those ideas, because I really enjoyed kind of thinking about what made uh, Gotham so successful and Krypton not as successful. And then also just uh, out of curiosity about Lobo, um, he wasn't a comic I could get into. And I, I almost felt like he was something of a cosmic Deadpool and that, you know, it was just sort of an extrapolation of, of Deadpool's powers. But what if he turned it into a cosmic so he can grow himself from a drop of blood or, or something like that and reproduce um, or clone himself or re-manifest however he, he does it. But it seemed like so many of these things were working against these that the, the cancellation of Krypton doesn't seem like a surprise. And the idea of Lobo seemed in so many ways far-fetched that the uh, the announcement that it also won't be continuing also didn't seem like the biggest of surprises. Did you guys have any follow-up on any of those things? You know, uh, it's funny that you say Deadpool because, you know, power-wise, yes, but I always felt personality-wise he was kind of a, a Wolverine ripoff. Like nice. I think when, when I always saw it as when Lobo came out, it was a time where Wolverine was really popular. And they needed kind of like their spin on that kind of attitude. Um, and yeah, and and it just it just never resonated with me. I, I you know I I don't know why. And and I and I do agree with you that maybe Krypton was too far removed because they didn't okay. necessarily. You could give Krypton another name. It wouldn't you know it it wouldn't have to be tied to Superman to be the show it was necessarily. Right. Gotham had to be tied to Batman. It had to have a Bruce Wayne, I think. Uh, I, I, so I, I do agree with you on that. Interesting. Kelly, did you have any thoughts to add on any of those ideas, or am I just spouting? Yeah, no, I mean, I with with Gotham, I think part of it also is we, we talk about how important Batman's rogues gallery is. So even if you set a story in Gotham and you don't necessarily put Batman and Bruce Wayne in it, there are still going to be... Um, viewers that are there for, well, there's someone who might be the Joker, there's someone who might be the Penguin. That, I think, is something that Krypton doesn't have, where the the typical TV viewer isn't going to go, oh, nice, this is Superman's home planet several generations before Superman. I'm totally, I'm, I'm into it. I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't know that they had that, that potential, that appeal. Um, and as far as Lobo goes, yeah, he, I mean, it's, he was, sort of an older character by the time I even got into comics. But I do remember, um, you know, as a kid being like, oh, it's it's funny because he shows up and he punches people for no reason. And he's kind of rude to girls, but like, haha, it's funny because he's this space biker. Although now looking at him, it's all right. So he is, he'll, he shows up and kind of makes a mess without 
any necessary reason. He's not actually that funny. And honestly, some of the, the relationship between him and women that I've seen at this point, it's kind of like, well, when I was a kid, I, I thought it was funny because I didn't realize that like when you're a grown woman, that's kind of a problem. I, you know, I was, I was eight. I had no idea. So at this point, I, I don't, yeah, I, I just don't know that he's the best choice. He's kind of stuck in a, in a period that just isn't happening anymore. Yeah, and they even tried to reboot him at one point and make him, like, cute and skinny and do some other stuff with him, and it that wasn't well-received either. So yeah. <laughs> how how they're going to actually, like, update him in any way I think is really going to be a challenge. And, and also, just overall, uh, you know, I really felt like you wrapped around to something that Brad brought up, and I, I didn't really feel like I, I covered or followed up as well, which was the idea of him being as dated as he was. You know, and Brad, I really thought you made a good example by comparing him to uh, Wolverine and also you know at the time that that was going on Wolverine was a huge product you know he had his own title he'd moved into a whole realm of storytelling that embraced some of the darker stuff that you know had been really popular and also he had as Kelly pointed out something that Lobo doesn't which was a mission he was trying to figure out his past Lobo is just trying to make a buck and that's a story that unless there's some heart in it, you got to give us another reason why we want to be attached to a character like that. And then Kelly, when I was younger, I didn't pick up on misogynistic tones. I didn't pick up on crude or crass. And yet when you read through how he acted and who he was, um, it's really hard to see him as a, a positive character that you want to see continuing on in storytelling. It almost feels like unless he can be updated with something to, to give him more value than we're seeing. He's an example of something that should be left in the past until we can find a way to, to make him part of the present in a way that feels real and also does something more than, than what he had been limited to, which was just coming in, making a mess, disrespecting everybody, and more than anything, just kind of being like a Tasmanian devil, if anything else, <laughs> you know, when I really think about it. But I feel like this is a story we're going to be coming back to. So hopefully if this continues to drum up thoughts, questions, possibilities, newer announcements coming out that we might hear about Krypton and maybe if Lobo somehow finds its other form of existence, it's something we can loop around bound to. However, some of the seasons coming up are providing some really interesting things for us to look at. And one that really caught my interest was this announcement about the crisis on infinite Earths. And how this upcoming crossover is actually going to be something that's going to loom through the CW's Flash. That's an interesting development. And I also feel it's something that's going to be important because, as it points out, the Flash is going to be picking up mere moments after the disappearance of Barry and Iris's daughter. And also the effect that this is going to have on the team as this new season picks up. Brad, what do you think about the story, this concept of the crisis just sort of always being on the horizon for the Flash? You know... I'm going to switch gears a little bit. One of my favorite things about reading comics is when you get those little hints about what's coming up, like these these hints of something huge in the horizon. One of my favorite examples of that is something we'll be talking about a little later in the podcast. That is Countdown to Infinite Crisis when Blue Beetle started following these clues. And I just love that in comics when they do that. And it seems like I'm going to be doing that in The Flash. And that makes me excited to to get caught up so that I can be ready to go when the season starts because I'm going to like to follow those little clues that they're leaving. And yet this makes me even more excited for it. This, I think this 
this crossover event's really gonna blow the doors off. I think I think it's gonna be really good. Kelly, what do you think? I honestly I think they're coming at this crossover in a really good way for a show that's based on comic books. And even in this announcement it said that the director kind of looks at it as each chapter being graphic novels, which is fantastic storytelling for a show that's based on comic books or, you know, graphic novels. And I do like that it's going to resonate throughout the season because I think my pet peeve in TV shows is when something big happens and they kind of resolve it too quickly and everything goes away too fast. Everyone's too okay immediately afterwards. I like the fact that we're going to see these reverberations of the event throughout the rest of The Flash and for, you know, and presumably throughout the rest of the shows. So I, I think it's a good idea. I think they're on the right track. Seth, what do you think? Yeah, I think they are on the right track. And I'm intrigued because one of the things that I do remember about The Flash in comics leading up to Crisis on Infinite Earths was the idea that he was actually going through a, a different series of hurdles. If you guys had you know, gotten into any of the, the storylines that existed for Barry Allen leading up to Crisis, he was actually on trial for murder. His wife had been murdered by uh, Reverse Flash. His life had fallen apart. There was these crazy plot lines where at one point someone was pretending to be him and at another point he went to the future and got a fake face so that he could move around and do detective work to try and solve the, the mystery that had led to him being on trial. And it was just this crazy thing. And the whole point of it, though, was this sort of wearing down of Barry. So that by the time he got to Crisis on Infinite Earths, Everything that had sort of been his foundation had been taken away from him. He'd been exposed. His identity had been revealed. He'd lost the love of his life. To sacrifice himself for the universe seemed like a, a noble finale to a hero who'd been so sort of mistreated at the end of his career. And I feel like that's something that couldn't be done in the television version. And yet that same sort of feeling need to be created. You know, that Barry faced with this challenge might almost see it as a strangely like a relief like he can leave behind all these troubles and do something that's extremely valuable or take you know stock in the fact that whatever leads up to this he survived through and iris is safe and he can sort of make this decision knowing knowing that he's doing it for a good reason uh because in the comics that was what he was faced with and yet i feel that what we've also seen with arrow is going to put a twist on that so i feel like sort of really putting these things on him and showing how his ability to sort of normally respond and put the best face on things isn't going to work for him this season. And instead, it's really going to have a, an impact that's going to really be so prominent leading up to Crisis. I feel like that's a really important way of using Crisis to also, like, move the character in that direction. So that by the time whatever does happen comes up, we're all emotionally tied in. We're like, oh, God, don't do this to Barry and Arrow last season. And who's it going to, you know what I mean? And I really feel like tying us in early and then making us just sort of struggle with him throughout the season is going to be one of those things that makes this event feel more important or, or have a greater impact than if they didn't take all these considerations into. And I thought you guys really brought up that great point of, of what it is when you're doing with this intention and what it means when you build a season with all of these great clues. Sounds like uh, we've got some really great possibilities being set up here, and uh, I really like the way you guys sort of pointed to how they can really inform not only this season, but this event. Any last thoughts before we go ahead and wrap that story up? Nope. 
Okay. Uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break because after all that TV and streaming news, we want to move into comic books. But one, we all got to catch our breaths. And two, you guys need to hear some ads because it's important stuff. We know you want to know. And like we said, it's a quick one. We'll be right back. Thanks for your patience. Talk to you in a second. This is Seth Singleton from DC Comics News, here to tell you about the Spinner Rack. Each and every week, DC Comics publishes so many great books, it can be hard to decide where to invest your time and money. And that's where the Spinner Rack comes in. The Spinner Rack is my honest attempt to rate, review, score the top five books from DC Comics each and every week. How can you listen? It's easy. All you have to do is go to your favorite platform, subscribe to DC Comics News Podcasts, and wait for the new episode to load up. Join me each and every week as I sift through the best from DC Comics and pick my top five books. Can't wait to share them with you and to hear your scores when you share them with us right here on the DC Comics News Podcast. And just like that, quicker than a flash, we're back for that final segment. The thing that really started it all, the comic books and the news that makes us all driving a little bit faster to get home and read, flipping through our phones just a little bit quicker because really, this is the stuff we feed off of. And there's plenty available to nibble at, including this first announcement, which is a first look at DC's Von Fries, a character who is coming out of the Batman White Knight series, and it's more recent version. Victor Fries has been an interesting character. This new take is a unique twist. Brad, what did you think about this announcement and this first look at a character who has a very interesting history with the uh, Wayne family? We talked about sympathizing with Batman villains earlier, and... Uh, it- Mr. Freeze has always been one of those villains that you could always kind of sympathize with. Bringing even more of his humanity out in this this book is going to be is going to be really good. I mean, if it was any bit as good as White Knight, anyway, it's going to be good. But yeah, I just I think uh, I think this is going to be a really good must-have book. Kelly, what do you think? I, I would say that, like you're saying, with sympathizing with Batman characters, um, Mr. Freeze is such a good example of that. And I think I'm Honestly, watching Batman the Animated Series as a kid, when he shows up, he's, for a lot of younger viewers, I think, one of the first times that you're challenged with seeing a character that you know is a bad guy and you know is doing bad things as a person. And you kind of get to see this entire scope of who Mr. Freeze is, um, who Victor Freeze is, and why he's doing what he does. And I think that, especially considering that this book is going to look at two of his father figures, one who was an, a Nazi and one who was a Jewish person living in Germany at the time. You know, I, I think that's a really interesting character to bring those two conflicting perspectives to the forefront. And if anything, this is a character who, again, has taught people that even if someone's doing bad things, even if they're a bad person, they're still a part of them. It's a person and there's still something fueling them underneath. And, and that's something we don't always get with villains i think in tv shows and and in books and comic books um so i he's a fantastic character i'm really excited to read it and i i just i hope it's well done i absolutely love mr freeze uh what do you think Seth? 
I thought you guys did a really great job of pointing out what's so important about the rogues gallery and Batman. And it's about the sympathy that's created for the characters that we know he has to stop. And yet at the same time, we can understand why they believe they're doing right. And why sometimes we want to root for them, even though we sort of know how this is all going to end up, you know, as you both pointed out, Victor, is a really great example of that. I love the concept of this story using a Romeo and Juliet tale set against a Nazi Germany backdrop and also mixing in the history of Thomas Wayne's sort of conflicted uh, relationship and his research and how all of that history informs the Victor Freeze that we're going to get to see, Mr. Von Freeze, that we're going to get to see in this title. And also why I think maybe this title won't be the only one that this could be a story, if done correctly, we could have more versions of the story of Mr. Von Fries and also more to sort of develop this new direction that his story is taking. Um, and I think that when you have great characters, these kinds of things are possible. Um, I'm having a lot of difficulty, aside from maybe like Alex Luthor, trying to find a Superman villain with that sort of degree of complexity or any other superhero whose list of rogues, maybe some Flash ones, because I'm such a big Flash sucker and, and I've read enough about them. But really, I feel that there is something that's been said about Batman's rogues gallery. And I really think you guys have keyed into something great, which is sympathetic villains that, depending on how you look at their story, aren't really villains. They're just fighting for what they believe is right or important to them as much as Batman does. They dress up just like he does. And it's really up to you or whoever you choose to listen to to decide which of them is the crazier, which of them is the hero or the villain, which of them has a greater right to do what they believe they need to do. And with Victor, his biggest thing is doing it for love. And man, I've heard about a lot of people doing a lot of crazy things. And when it's about love, it's really hard to tell them that they were doing it wrong. They believed in what they were doing. And with Victor, I always felt like he had that sort of authenticity behind it, where it was just like, go ahead, look me in the eyes and doubt me. And I'm not going to take that staring contest for 50 cents or 50 bucks. So this could be a really amazing story. And I'm really excited to see just how much more I can feel like maybe Victor's just a good guy getting a bad rap. <laughs> but I also like the idea that what we're seeing from this is a twist that we get to follow up on in some of these other stories. Uh, this other headline about the idea of Blackest Night and Infinite Crisis also taking a twist by having their stories become corrupted in dark multiverse reimaginings. Brad, I really thought you started to set up uh, some really interesting ideas when you were talking about Blue Beetle and how now this is a twist on that idea with Infinite Crisis and also what you might have to say about this announcement and how it might impact the story of Blackest Night as it's described in this article. I can't wait to read this, the Infinite Crisis one, because I always did love that countdown uh, standalone issue. Uh, in fact, it's something that I reread every year or so. And the fact that in this Blue Beetle survives is kind of interesting, and he's got the power to save the world. And the fact that James Tinian is writing it really intrigues me because I love his writing on Justice League Dark. So I'm I'm excited for this uh, this one very much. And uh, the idea, as far as the Blackest Night goes, the idea that Sinestro is the one left that can save the universe is kind of a, an interesting an interesting spin. 
uh, there's just been so much cool storytelling that's come from the aftermath of metal and the dark multiverse. And it's just, it's fun to watch DC really explore that and have fun with these stories. So I think, I think these are both going to be pretty fun reads. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, one of my favorite things about comic books is the fact that we can get these really weird, what if alternate universe kind of tellings that turn the actual story that we're used to on its head, but still can exist and don't actually necessarily have to affect it. I mean, regardless of the dark multiverse, we still know what's canon for, um, you know, for the Flash, for Blue Beetle, for Batman, for all of the characters affected by it. So we can have fun kind of exploring what side stories they can come up with. I think this sounds like a really fun read. And I like the idea of exploring what happens in a world where the villains win. What do heroes do? What do villains do when the entire dynamic between who's supposed to win traditionally in a hero story and who actually wins is, is is different and doesn't work out the way that we expect it to. So yeah, I, I think this is something I'm definitely going to pick up. It sounds really, really exciting. Seth? have to agree that you both have it pretty much in line with my thinking, which is one, really exciting. Two, what a great approach to retell these stories. I loved what you brought up about the idea of Sinestro. I also love this idea that you both pointed out, which is the idea of the heroes losing and the villains winning. And, you know, the closest really came for the longest time was concepts of like the crime syndicate. But through this concept of the dark multiverse, we've now had the opportunity to really take that mere reverse image of these characters into such a deep and dark direction that the stories that are coming out of them are amazing. And this concept of Blue Beetle, who I honestly believe Ted Kord needs to have his own title and we need to recapsulate everything about who he was as the original Blue Beetle um, and about the things that sort of informed that character and the fact that he was trying to follow in the footsteps of his hero, who was this really amazing version of a Blue Beetle. And if we could just do more with that, I'll be the happiest man in the world. But if we have to start it with a corrupted infinite crisis, I'm cool with that because the moment they kill Blue Beetle, I was really kind of pissed with comic books for a little while there. I was like, you jerks. Like, this is a non-powered hero. How can you do this to him? Why? And I loved the blue and gold stories from Justice League. So any chance I get to see Ted, um, just, you know, my heart just has a little bit of a happy dance. Regarding this story, really, I just feel like it's going to have so many dark twists that I'm going to have a lot of fun enjoying it. And I'm going to have a lot of fun whenever we go, dude, did you read that? Okay, so seriously, what would you think? Because I feel like this is going to be kind of like Injustice. And uh, there were moments in Injustice where I was like, I got to talk to somebody about this because I saw some stuff and, you know, I just need to process. <laughs> Something else that might be a bit of processing for fans who maybe never expected it, others who probably always saw it coming, a recent announcement that Greg Capullo has re-signed with DC and that there are exciting possibilities on the horizon for him teaming up with Scott Snyder. Brad, what was your thoughts on this uh, announcement and the biggest adventure yet? Yeah, I want to know what this biggest adventure yet is. I'm going to be uh, really curious. Hopefully we'll be talking about this a lot on the podcast as things progress once we, we know more about it. I'm really excited to hear what they have in store because they are they make a pretty good team. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he resigned and, uh, yeah, I want to bring on this big adventure. 
that I guess it's going to have to wait until after Year of the Villains over, but um, we should be in store for something uh, pretty good. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I actually watched a video of his panel, and I believe with Scott Snyder um, and a few other Batman writers from San Diego Comic-Con this past summer, and he's hilarious. Like, I I just really like him as a person at this point, because he said when they initially mentioned or initially talked about Dark Knight's metal, um, Scott Snyder approached him like bottle of fancy tequila in hand, prepared to pitch him this entire thing. And he basically sat down and said, so I'm thinking it's called Dark Knight's metal. And Greg immediately went, all right, I'm in. Like, that's just, it's, it's so funny. And it kind of, even outside of their professional work, it, it kind of depicts the sort of relationship you would hope that you have working in comics that, you can go to someone who you've clicked with and you're you're on decent terms with and be like, I have this crazy idea. And it's like, all right, cool, let's do it. And I, I like that enthusiasm. I think they make a really good team. So I'm I'm definitely happy that he signed on to, to do another project. Seth? I think when you've got people who work great together, they're going to separate for a little bit. They're going to take a break. And then when they come back together, what you're going to realize is what they gathered on their own and they bring back together to the table is just a blessing for everybody. So I think the idea of having him resign is a really smart move. I like the idea of the biggest adventure yet. I like the promise of it. And, you know, I think you really nailed something important there, Kelly, the idea that these guys have this kind of relationship where they're comfortable enough to bring up the crazy and have the other guy go, not bad. Okay. So how does the crazy keep going? And you're like, really, you want to keep talking about this? And that's where the best stuff comes from. So I really think this is a a great concept, great idea, great team up. And best thing about great team ups is they remind us of what we loved in the past and they make us look forward to more. That's why I still think anytime you put Green Arrow and Green Lantern together, I'm going to chuckle just like any other Brave and the Bull combination or any other sort of team up when you know what these characters, what these creative talents have done in the past, you sort of just smile and go, okay, what's next? And uh, that's that's just a great question and a, a huge realm of possibility. Like Brad said, I think we're going to be talking about this on future podcasts. I wonder if this next story, though, is something we're going to continue to talk about because it's something that I feel like I've heard about and now I've heard about again. And I'm wondering just what that might mean. The announcement that DC has asked retailers, again, the important word in this headline, to destroy Superman number 14 and Supergirl number 33 issues that were recalled. They're now offering credit. I'm not sure if that's supposed to you know, suggest that credit wasn't offered before, but I do know that there was a decision to change the cover and that the issues that had been shipped were going to be replaced. This story seems to provide a little bit more information about it. And Brad, I was curious what you had to say in response. I'm a little behind the curve on this story, I guess, because I'm curious why they were recalled in the first place. Why did they want them destroyed? From what I understand, there was a decision made about the covers. Either Yeah, I knew it was something about the covers, but yeah, I'm I'm just, just, huh. And I, I, I researched a little bit and I couldn't really find anything. Uh, you know, I was a little, little shocked that they would do that. Um, but beyond that, um, it's kind of a shame because 
superheroes has never been bigger. You know, the movies are making billions of dollars, but the source material is still struggling. And I'm sure that this is going to be a financial hit for DC to have to recall these issues and offer credit to the retailers. And it's, you know, it's just a shame that they had to do that with these, with these issues. And if you happen to have gotten your hands on some of these on the secondary market, they're going to be going to be worth a lot, it seems, over the next few months. So overall, it's just a shame. But um, yeah, yeah, I just wasn't even sure why that they were recalled to begin with. Uh, but Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I I also couldn't find anything really specifying why it is that they wanted to recall the cover in the first place. But I think what's the most interesting about this is that they, they shouldn't have said destroy these books, destroy everything, we're going to send you new ones. That is the the fastest way to get people to not destroy them and say, all right, great, now I'm sitting on a gold mine. And especially if, if this was really something little where they just wanted to change a few details of the cover, there's no point in the controversy, but they've created it just by saying you have to get rid of those books. Automatically, people are going to go, all right, great, I can sell it for $40. And I hate that I keep coming back to this, but it brings me back to the whole... Batman the Damned and, and the Batwang controversy where it was a, that that was not a big deal it didn't have to be a big deal but within 12 hours it became a huge deal just because they said get rid of these books destroy them we'll give you something new that, that's the fastest way to make something that's nothing into something so I I mean it, it sucks that the cover has to be recalled but I, you know like you were saying Brad I don't actually understand why it had to be recalled in the first place and maybe that's actually making it worse because maybe there are some people who have their hands on both covers who are going to go, all right, so I need to find the clues here. Like, what okay. happens? <laughs> we're we're sending people not. like a national treasure thing. Because <laughs> I was, I, the, the way the whole story was presented, it was like, well, everybody should know. It should be like common knowledge that this happened. It didn't really give any background on to why. So I was right? yeah, no kind of, yeah, it's weird. Uh, okay, different cover. Seth, what do you think? Yeah, what I know that I had heard was that the the reasoning had never been made clear. It was something about uh, a direction that the, the the cover didn't reflect correctly what was happening in the issue, and they wanted to do a cover that more correctly sort of represented what the tone of that issue was supposed to be, and and beyond that, it, it seemed like any explanation had fallen to the side of vagary. And because of that, we're all still left with the question, because if that had been a, a, a declarative statement, it would have been something I think this article would have referenced to point to. And then we all could have picked that apart to figure out whether or not it was PR or PC or something else entirely. But uh, I do agree that really the biggest problem is by saying you're going to destroy those covers, you've created this opportunity within the speculation market. And I know that just from what I've seen on a few message channels, there's a couple of people who were able to just ask their comic shop, hey, do you really got to get rid of all of those? Let one or two slip. And now that they were able to, they've been given the opportunity to now charge them, as you mentioned, rack up uh, the price and drive this weird speculation frenzy, which at this point turns comic books into the stock market. It's all about guessing, gossip, speculation, and innuendo, and, and all those things just create so much uncertainty that really it, it does more harm for the, the market and the industry than it does any good. 
I hope it's not something that doesn't become an ugly trend or a problem that we're looking back on. Like, man, remember when they screwed this all up with Superman 14 and Supergirl 33? Boy, they should have known. But, you know, because really, there's there's nothing worse than looking back and going, boy, this this was actually a bigger problem than we thought. So hopefully whatever mistakes were made, there's been uh, some sort of understanding or a lesson has been learned because I don't like what I'm seeing here. And it again, it just points me back to some of the ugly stuff that I saw with the speculation market in the 90s. And comics struggled to recover from that. We're only now maybe trying to feel like we're far enough beyond it. But things like this, they, they don't help with the cause. So I can only hope that this is just a one-time little screw-up and they're going to fix it soon. But I really feel like it could have been handled better and we're seeing why it should have been because it's affecting the market and it didn't have to be this way. I guess that's the worst part. Right, regarding other comic news that's coming out and the list is long, we have an announcement that Skeletor is joining the heroes in He-Man and the Masters of the Multiverse. But what I was intrigued by is that the story suggests one possibility and yet or the headline does. And yet in the story, it turns out that the Skeletor actually, well, he wasn't originally a Skeletor, which kind of makes the concept interesting. But I'm also intrigued by this idea of expanding He-Man and the Masters of the Universe into He-Man and the Masters of the Multiverse. Brad, I know I'm not alone with this sort of like what's going on here. What was your take? This sounds like Dark Knight's metal He-Man version, <laughs> in a way. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I do like seeing more about the origin of Skeletor. How did he get that way kind of thing. Um, I think that that's very... Uh, that could be very fun and interesting to see. And I, I'm curious. It was just announced today that Kevin Smith is bringing a new anime Masters of the Universe series to Netflix. I would just wonder if they're far enough ahead where they could kind of squeeze that in to be one of these multiverse versions of He-Man that we get to see in uh, in this comic. Kelly, what do you think? I, I mean, I'll start by saying that He-Man was slightly before my time so i'm almost everything i know about he-man is in a very ironic uh comes from (laughs) memes and youtube videos (laughs) like i just see him singing that song and then i'm I'm almost positive that my current like cover photo on facebook is just skeletor drinking wine so i i don't have a ton to weigh in on on his backstory or on whether or not I'm excited to see it. It's something I'll read. I would love to know more about He-Man outside of outside of the fact that he makes a really funny dubbed YouTube video. But um, and and in the same vein, as far as Kevin Smith goes, and I think I've said it on the show before, but I have a very complicated internal. I, I guess you would say mental feeling about Kevin Smith where there are moments that I like him because he's from the same area of New Jersey that I was raised in so I kind of have to like him I, I grew up 20 minutes from the place where Kirk's Kirk, well, Clerks was filmed <laughs> and and then at the same time I just uh, there's been so much that he's done that I just haven't been into but recently he tweeted something after I believe it was the um, El Paso shooting that was so inspirational and so on point talking about how, you know, we, we should all just get out and create things for the people who no longer have the opportunity to create them. So on on that tweet alone, 
I am all for Kevin Smith right now, and I really hope he knocks us out of the park because I would actually really love to know more about He-Man. I, I know relatively nothing. Seth? <laughs> well, Kelly, I, I would love to help you out with this, but this is the part where I have to admit that I grew up in a very conservative home, and I actually wasn't allowed to watch He-Man. It, it was one of those TV shows that I was uh, banned from watching, which was a weird thing for me because as a kid, I had to explain to my friends, like, no, I'm not allowed to watch this show. I have to go. I have to. <laughs> um, and no, I don't watch it at home, so I'm not familiar with but the concept was always like I didn't understand why it was such a big problem because the concept seemed so great to me. This person who has to rely on their better qualities and because of those better qualities are enhanced as the character of He-Man. Um, there's so much about it that I, I don't know, except that it was apparently a very formative television program for most of my friends because I grew up during a period when he was extremely popular. So not watching him put me in that category of being a weird person. That's its own story but because of that he was always sort of a mystery to me like i knew about the basic concepts but so much about the comics or things were never something i delved into because i developed other pursuits and interests other characters i got into really the story intrigued me with this concept of how this one skeletor who ends up joining the team actually became skeletor and i think there's a really interesting history there that, that should be explored but you know, Brad, you totally took this story a different direction with this Kevin Smith announcement. Like, I, I had no idea about the animated thing. And now, you know, Kelly, you know, geez, you brought up some stuff that really remind me of the fact that I, when I was first introduced to Kevin Smith, I was in high school. And as a high school teenage boy, some of his stuff was extremely funny. And then five or ten years later, trying to watch some of the movies that I thought were hilarious then, or even some of his newer stuff, like, I, I'll honestly admit, I took a girlfriend to see Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back, and I had to watch so many bad movies afterwards, because I picked that one. <laughs> my punishment bad was choice. like, you know, dude, I, I can honestly say that the first movie I had to see afterwards was Legally Blonde, which I'm sure is adorable, <laughs> and I'm sure is great. But that was part of my punishment, and that's something I've always had to remember. So there's a part of me that recognizes that Kevin Smith hasn't always been good for me, let alone for cinema, filmmaking, storytelling. You know, he's had great moments, like you just pointed out. And Kelly, I think that was a great balance with that story about his post for El Paso. And I really feel like, you know, the artists who give us inspiration when responding to tragedy or important people but yeah i definitely think that that's this really interesting conflicted idea that you brought up for me and uh i appreciate you both for bringing that in because really this was just going to be a he-man story and now it's taken on just a little bit something more and i hope everybody listening had a chance to follow all those threads and maybe check back with us about it it seems like changes are happening all over the place on the next headline is the announcement tom derenick and trevor scott are going to be picking up wonder woman starting with issue number 78 this is a bit of a change for the, the talent side of things. Um, you know, it, it's interesting when it's announced this way. Sometimes I feel like it's not always announced. It just happens. What do you guys feel about this story? Is it something that really deserves a lot of discussion? Or is it just more of, like, interesting development? Move on to the next headline. Brad, what were your thoughts? I, I guess the thing that jumped out at me about the story is the fact that um, uh, Jesus Marino will still be back for issues uh, 79. So I'm kind of curious if they are doing this as a way to keep Wonder Woman on schedule, because, you know, and we'll be talking about this also later in the podcast is things getting delayed. 
and maybe they're just trying to avoid that by getting another artist to fill in for an issue to keep you know to keep the story going so i was just you know i was curious maybe that's a possibility they don't want to keep pushing things back uh kelly what do you think yeah i hope i mean it's good for them if they are taking over completely and i think it is possible especially with a book like wonder Woman, we're on issue 78 so obviously there are creative talents that signed on for the beginning of the series that maybe have other commitments or other things going on now where they just can't contribute as consistently although i will say that the especially the covers and there there have been a few different artists but with jesus marino it's he's made some really fantastic wonder woman covers they're beautiful they're detailed they're a bizarre kind of new take on emotion for wonder woman i've never seen her look as emotional and as compelling as she does in some of the covers that have been coming out recently so i i would hope that this doesn't mean that aspect is going to change but yeah it's it's the 78th issue at this point that's a very very long time to work on a specific book so there there is a good chance that they just need people to fill in here and there or maybe need someone to take over for a little while while he works on other projects uh what do you think seth I'm really interested by this idea as well, and I, I really just wanted to follow up on what you mentioned about the idea of, of the covers that we've been seeing recently. I, I do agree. I, I feel like the degree of emotion, you know, has sort of revealed some layers, whether they're vulnerabilities, compassion, strengths that, that I just haven't seen on a cover of Wonder Woman like this, and seeing them the way they have been recently, it's been really just... It's been part of a great package. I've loved everything that's been going on in the Wonder Woman stories. I, I thought the most recent 76 was just, I mean, th- there was just so much that I really enjoyed about it and so many things that have occurred and the directions it's been taking, the cast of characters. I've really enjoyed a lot, but I also know that getting to 78, it's a lot of work. And, you know, we've already seen with uh, with Tom King, the announcement that, you know, his plan for 100 is cutting short at 85 that things that you know you want to have happen sometimes have to change over the course of however many years it takes you to get to 78. Um, but then also I really think, Brad, you're pointing to something really interesting, which is this idea of keeping things on time by building in little breakups to the scheduling like this. Clearly, there's some internal sort of understanding organization that's leading to this, but it seems like it's some really good forward thinking. And the reason I'm going to bring that up is because it feeds perfectly into our next story and really i'm going to keep this one as short as possible because i feel like so much has already been said before but it's the announcement that shazam has been delayed again i feel like in so many ways we've covered all of the big topics but if there's something else you want to add into regarding this announcement or just a a bullet point nutshell whatever um, i totally understand if you're like i've said all i can really say i don't know what else to say brad i'll let you take the first swing Nope. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not saying anything more about this story that we haven't all said ad nauseum in this podcast over the past what, like four weeks now. Uh, I mean, ah, oh, just man. Yeah, that's uh, all you can stand. You can't stand some more. I got you, Kelly. How about you? It's too late here for me to scream into the microphone the way I want to, so I, I I'm gonna have to defer to. I have nothing else okay. to add. My my only echo to all of that is the uh, the great Carol King 
Cause it's too late, baby. Yeah, it's too late. Too late, too. Yeah. So, uh, with that note, I'm just gonna shift gears and talk about the fact that should you find yourself looking for a dark place to direct your energy and frustration regarding Shazam delayed, we've got six heroes who are taking a dark turn and might allow you to embrace just what it's like to be not so nice anymore. What do you think about this story, Brad? Uh, you know, the concept of six heroes known so much for their goodness now suddenly revealing just the, the depths of evil that they're capable of. Man, uh, these designs look really good. We've seen the Dark Shazam already, and this picture we're getting now is even better than the art I've seen before as far as like getting to see what the character really looks like. The dark Supergirl looks like a got a little Harley Quinn in her. Uh, yeah, these designs are great. And the Hawkman looks pretty frightening. And back again to the Blue Beetle, uh, he's always a character that I liked, whether it's the Ted Cord version um, or the, um, oh, and I forget the the character's name. You who, just call him Jaime. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I just like the character, so seeing him in it is is good too. Uh, and I like that we looking like we don't know who two of them are going to be. So I'm kind of interested to see who they're going to reveal to be the other two as we get closer to have these issues coming out. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, um, I I'm excited to see who it is. There's a small part of me that from the beginning has been banking on one of them being Wonder Woman. I I don't know why. There's just this little bug in the back of my head that keeps saying it should be a really good character to see go dark but yeah the the designs look amazing although i I will say that as far as at least shazam and supergirl go we kind of have seen a darker version of shazam and black adam and the same with supergirl we've seen her opposite kind of negative clones in stories about her before so um it does look like they're taking a different direction with these I just I hope it doesn't feel like we're seeing just stuff that's it's kind of Supergirl but evil but not Supergirl again or but in any case it's they're really cool designs they look like they're gonna be awesome so I I have high hopes for it. Seth. Well, I definitely agree that the designs are great, Brad. I'm just gonna echo you there. Ted Cord, I loved, and the only one who could fill his shoes was Jaime, and, and Jaime just really sort of brought Blue Blue Beetle back to me. Uh, in a great way, in a way that that really made me think, okay, if you had to get rid of Ted, at least she gave me someone I can learn to love. (laughs) And that was a a great process. Kelly, I really like what you bring up, the idea that we've already seen dark versions of Shazam. We already know what an evil possibility is through Black Adam, and we've already seen some alter egos of uh, Supergirl. The one thing I'm intrigued by is how do you do it different, right? And so I'm I'm curious to see how the creators take these stories in a different way than what we might have already seen. For me, the biggest reference on an evil Shazam is always going to be the Kingdom Come version. You know, that twisted version that was warped by Lex Luthor. And there was something so menacing about him. I wasn't sure if anything could keep up, but then there were those teaser images. I think it was last episode. No dialogue, but just a quick example of just how sort of like sinister I felt uh, Shazam could be in the evil version we saw in some uh, sort of preview pages. And that gives me some hope for the possibility of of really taking these characters as far as you can. And if that's the direction, then I believe the promise is 
something more than what we've seen and something that's not just a repeat of things we've already seen done with these characters. But what I'm really intrigued by is this is kind of part of a theme that sort of feeds into this next story, which is the idea of Grant Morrison and Liam Sharp ending their Green Lantern run in October, but then planning a return. And then in the meantime, Morrison's going to be rewriting reality with Green Lantern Black Stars, in which popular Green Lantern characters will now be wearing the Black Stars uniform. And everything seems to be getting a little bit twist up. Is it just me, or is everybody seriously embracing the year of the villain, doom, darkness is the only direction sort of motif? Brad, am am I completely wrong here, or do you feel the shadow is getting longer, too? Yeah, the shadow is getting longer, and I think think they're kind of timely stories in a way where we're seeing good things getting twisted and and turned evil. I think that maybe with the way things are going in the world, things that we used to think were good have been twisted politically, you know, things like that. So I think these are timely, timely stories. Uh, Sometimes comics can reflect what's going on in the real world in very interesting ways. And I think that that's what Grant Morrison is trying to do with, with this story. And far has his work with the, you know, finishing up the Green Lantern and kind of bringing it back. I think that he works best when he can do kind of those closed arcs. Like, here's a character. Here's what I'm going to do with it. Here's what I'm going to say. And then that's it. And then he goes on to something else. And like All-Star Superman is a good example of that. I'm glad that he's coming back for a kind of a part two in 2020, but I have kind of a suspicion that after he does that kind of second season with Green Lantern, that he'll move on to other characters. Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I think Grant Morrison is a writer who does a very good job of taking something that might be ridiculous or a concept that we wouldn't really take seriously and grounding it and making it emotional and honest and, and compelling to read. Um, that and he's just really good at handling strange kind of screwed up subjects. Um, so as far as this being something that fits the modern idea in terms of the world is getting darker, things are looking a little bit bleaker from where we're sitting. I think he'll have something very interesting to say. And it's funny that he's using Green Lantern and specifically this is such a a just personal thing that I can't stand Hal Jordan I don't know why I just I don't like him and there's recently I actually tried to explain this to one of my friends who doesn't read comic books at all and had no idea what Green Lantern was in the first place and by the time I got to or got through explaining what Green Lantern means and what being a Green Lantern is I was like you know what forget it just I, I just don't like him so there's a part of me that's just like yeah it figures he, he would be the one to do something weird and to become some some new kind of sigil or or version of himself so yeah it's i i think it'll be good i love that grant morrison's doing it and i just can't really explain my just internal dislike of hal jordan seth you know, Kelly, uh, there was a period where Hal Jordan went from being a character who was exactly as I saw him on page to being someone who whose flaws became more visible than I imagined they would be. And actually, my experience was through Green Lantern Mosaic. It's just it's a story of a, a world that's been put together by the Guardians, and Jon Stewart has to make sure that order is maintained. 
And the weird thing about the planet is that it's made up of neighborhoods that have been pulled from different planets throughout the universe. And so it's this crazy world which humans live next to aliens, live next to all sorts of other strange discoveries. And the weird thing was throughout that storyline, Jon Stewart does not like Hal Jordan. He he talks about how it's so annoying to look at his perfect, you know, pink flesh and fleshy lips and perfect brown hair. And I never thought about him that way. And yet after I read that, it was really easy for me to see the development of him becoming parallax and all the things that happened to him afterwards. And it was really interesting that I didn't think about that until I heard somebody else just now you saying, I don't like Hal Jordan. You know, and, you know, I can't put a finger on it, but there's things I don't like and I can't always explain it. But, you know, I'm really intrigued by that idea because when I've been reading this Grant Morrison Green Lantern, I haven't found Hal to be all that interesting. I found the story to be interesting. But mostly what I found about Hal is that he really does his best in his presentation to just be I'm a cop. I'm a space cop. There's things I can do. There's things I can't do. There's gray areas. But really. I'm just a, you know, a cut and dry police officer. And he really is no bones about it. So I felt that that's something that Grant Morrison has been working with as an idea. But I also wanted to come back to something, Brad, you mentioned about this idea of Morrison's strength lying in a story arc that he can start and bring to a close instead of this long meandering, who knows where it's going to go, when it's going to end, what the purpose is. And also, I really feel like there's something that speaks to his strength with this idea of ending in October, picking up with the Black Stars, and then later picking up with Green Lantern again at some point. Almost as though the only interesting thing about this character is to tell this story arc, then do something to destroy it, and then tell a story about picking up the pieces afterwards. And that seems like a, a really interesting approach to characters. Almost like, you know, look, I've done all I can do with this version. I'm going to have to break him, smash him up for a bit. And then after I'm done with that, I can come back and try and do something with him. But I can give you 12 with this guy, and then i got to do something like Black Stars. And then maybe I'll come back to it. And that just seems like a really interesting sort of long thought process. And makes me think that this is all leading up to what he really wants to do when he picks the title back up and does that second big arc. That was really sort of my my final take on it. Thankfully, when we read the issues, there's one we'll really find out. And something we found out that I didn't even know was coming until I saw the image was the announcement that Tim Drake has gone from being the Red Robin to, well, um, a more naturally colored Robin. <laughs> Note the hesitation and questioning in my voice. <laughs> I kind of sound like one of those people that ends a sentence with a question, like you almost <laughs> think they're going to finish, that kind of inflection thing. If you watch Family Guy, you've heard Stewie do this. So, uh, Brad, what did you think about Tim Drake's new costume, despite the fact I tried to ruin it with that ad lib about Family Guy? Go for it. <laughs> you totally gave me a new perspective when you brought it to my mind that these are natural robin colors so it kind of makes sense because my first reaction was i don't like the colors um but it, you know it did feel kind of like a halfway point between uh, like a nightwing costume and a robin costume the look of it i kind of liked but the color scheme i was kind of skeptical about until you brought that up and now i kind of kind of appreciate it a little more um, and just something that I want to bring up about this story was they also said that Naomi is going to become part of Young Justice now, which I'm excited about. 
because I really liked her book and I really liked that character. So on a side note, that's kind of cool. Kelly, what do you think? I and it's it's a good thing, Seth, that you brought up that that's what color robins are, because I like Brad was saying just initially, it's it it is a a nicely designed costume. The look of it is very, and if you were looking at it as a, a black and white sketch, but I'm someone who I'd say 90, 80, 90% of my closet is black. I've never owned a single brown piece of clothing because why own a brown piece of clothing? Like if you're going to wear dark clothes, then just wear black or gray. Why are you wearing brown? It's, it's like the worst <laughs> color visual. And I mean, this is totally in, in my own head, but visually for clothing, it's a color that just doesn't pop. It never pops as far as wearing a superhero costume goes. You think of blues and and red and yellow and really strong primary colors. So it's kind of frustrating to me that it's this like brown, yellow, blah. I I, I don't like it. I like the way it's I like the way it's designed. I like the lines. I like the actual way that it seems to fit him, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess if Robins weren't actually brown in real life, I would just be kind of like, why? Why, why would you make this the it, change it from something vibrant? Or, or even when you see black in superhero costumes, it tends to be a statement. It tends to be something saying that this character is shifted into a different emotional state or or a different state as a person. Um, it just I. Yeah, it's. I went on a whole rant there about how I don't own any clothing that is brown, but yeah, basically. <laughs> you know, rants are good. Rants are how we try and take the ideas that, for me, just sort of spin around in a blender in my brain, and then as we try and spit them out, try and give them some ordered sense. And sometimes the best way to do that is through a rant. So you know what, Kelly? work through the process, find the discoveries, and let us join you on the journey, okay? Because one, I'm going to point out two things to you. You're giving me a lot of credit, but actually it was the article that referenced to me that idea and that reminder of it being his natural colors, that that robins are naturally brown, and that it caused me to think that as well. So I'm not going to try and take undue credit for that one. The article brought it up. I just wanted to include it as part of the discussion. Two, uh, I I was wondering what you that's okay. That was just something fun I was playing with, yeah, but I wanted to make sure. about birds, oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes I just know things I shouldn't know, and sometimes I just surprise myself that I remember things I swore I'd forgotten. <laughs> when it comes to this, what I was most intrigued by was two things. One, when I first looked at it, I had an image of the Talons, you know, of Talon from back with the Court of Owls storylines. I don't know why, but something about the brown and with those sort of that that gold trim, that sort of yellowish trim that it's got to his costume. And then weirdly, and this is just me, it made me think of Tara from the early days of the Titans. And I remember her having like this brownish colored costume. And yeah, to be honest, I remember thinking kind of similar to you, Kelly. Like when I first saw her, I was like, how boring. Actually, between her and Geomancer, oh my god, of course they're related. Look at them. They both have these boring, (laughs) crappy brown costumes. How boring. Like, I get your Earth, but do you have to be brown? Why brown? Is it 1970s and we're all trying to embrace that brown and green are the best colors ever? You know what I mean? Like, I, I I don't really get it either. So when I saw Tim's costume... I was like, okay, I get it. It's more natural. It also, hopefully, I think maybe pulls us away from the confusion that, it, I mean, 
Robin I got. Red Robin never made sense to me. It just felt like, okay, is he a food franchise restaurant now? Or what What, what just <laughs> happened? Like, I, I like Red Robin. I like the song Rockin' Robin. I like a lot of things about Robin. I read the first Robin storyline when he got his own solo, and I thought it was some of the coolest stuff ever. So this change just seemed weird. I, I get that it's supposed to be natural coloring. And yet, I love what you brought up about this idea that, you know, characters who wear black costume or these darker toned ones, it's supposed to be a statement. And yet, interestingly enough, there could be a really unique statement that's being made with this choice of this brown color. And if that's something they can build into the story that makes me look at this even more positively, I think that's something I would really look forward to seeing and hearing and just any sort of development. And then lastly, just to pile on, Brad, dude, yeah, Naomi. (laughs) I'm really intrigued by this concept because by the time her story ended in her little six-issue series, I was like, please tell me we're going to see more of this character and please tell me where I can find more. And this image just lets me know. Now I get to see her playing with Young Justice. And I really think that's going to be a great mix because who she is and her sort of introduction to being a superhero is so different than anyone else on that team. Uh, I almost feel like she's going to bring this very grounded sort of real world sort of approach to things. It's maybe going to shake it up a bit. And I think that could be huge. Yeah, but for sure. Yeah. Um, the last thing that really is on our agenda, but could be even bigger than what I just thought might be huge is the upcoming Harley Quinn breaking glass and the trailer that's been released to promote it. Um, you know, last story guys, feel free to go ahead and stretch your legs on this one as much as you want or or keep it close and tight. But, you know, it's a new take here on, uh, Harleen Quinzel and also her relationship to Ivy and the things that, that brought about, this version of her story. What caught you the most about the trailer and what does it tell you about what you're looking forward to with the upcoming uh, Breaking Glass? Well, I've actually read it. Uh, I During BookCon awesome. earlier in the summer, I was able to get my hands on a galley copy and it's good. So yeah, I think people will be in for a treat. The trailer I dug, uh, it feels edgy, it feels punk rock. It feels very much in line with Harley Quinn. Um, I, I, so I, I think it was cut together very well. And I think that if, you know, more people to see this, it'll spark their interest. Um, so yeah, uh, good trailer. Kelly, what do you think? Well, I mean, darn it, Brad, cause you, you already know that it's good. So I kind of derailed. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I honestly, and it looks like a good trailer. It looks like a, a decent book. I just... I'm not that interested in it, which is crazy because typically I am, I, I read majority of female driven books. I really like Harley Quinn. I just, for this, I don't know, something about this trailer just didn't click for me. I kind of watched it and was like, all right, it's another Harley Quinn story. It's Harley versus, you know, insert the man here, which is cool. And she's a perfect character to go up against kind of these, these, corrupt um stations in our society where it's something that it's legal but it's not right she's the perfect character to do that but i I almost feel as if there's an oversaturation with harley quinn right now she's she's in everything she has so many books she has so many titles she's she's going to be in suicide squad she's going to be in birds of prey there's just there's a lot of harley quinn going on and i think i've hit the wall where i'm kind of like eh 
I wouldn't say sick of it, but I'm at a point now where it's, you know, I, when there were a lot of Harley Quinn books first coming out, I would pick up all of them. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, eh, I mean, if something looks really crazy, then sure. But yeah, I, I just, I'm not that into it. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now I'm really kind of caught between a Brad and a Kelly place. Um, you know, and that's just a tough thing. It's like being stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, how do you really make a decision here? Brad's read it. He knows it. Um, I secretly know that there's a review copy that can be peeked at through our resources at DC Comics News. And I've downloaded a copy of that, which I'm willing to, you know, share my thoughts on once I've had a chance to read it. I can totally understand what you're saying about the saturation factor, Kelly. Really, that could be a big detractor. And honestly, with this one, I unfortunately was looking for the reasons to buy in. You know, what are the things that are going to make me want to read this story that I'm not going to find in any other Harlequin story? And the biggest draws for me right now would have to be two things. One, a fairy god person mama. Because a fairy godmama is eh, a fairy godmother is oh, so dated, and a fairy god person just feels like PC ran over it. But a fairy god person mama, that feels like total Harlequin. And then also just because uh, I've really been intrigued by what she's done at the Marvelous Competition with X23, the fact that it's Mariko Tamaki and that there's something about what she can do with the story that that draws me in. You know, it's just like if someone was like, yeah, so, uh, you know, oh, go figure. Grant Morrison went ahead and decided he's doing a 24-issue Detective Chimp. You better believe I'm just going to pick it up. Even if I've been reading Detective Chimp in, you know, Justice League Dark and I felt like I got too much of him and some other stuff. If I know that a certain, you know, storyteller is getting their hands on that character, there, there's enough of that to sometimes pull me past the saturation factor. And the last thing, and this is just a personal note, in the article it mentions that she's going to be doing some signings and that one will be in San Francisco at Dr. Comics and Mr. Games on August 31st. That I know of, the only Dr. Comics and Mr. Games is actually in Oakland on Piedmont Avenue. I know it because my wife's friend actually owns that shop. And if that's the right one, then it's actually in Oakland, not in San Francisco. And if you're listening to this, Please keep that in mind, because the difference between the two, well, there's a bay and a bridge and a tunnel and a lot of stuff that can make the difference between you being in the right place or having to make a crazy journey to get there. So just a last little thought on that, because now that I know she's going to be there on the 31st and I can't guarantee I've got any commitments that day, there's just a strong chance I'd want to pop in and say hi and, and just get a chance to to see what that's about. But it's really having seen her at a signing for X-23 and seeing what she's done with that that makes me the most curious about this this possibility of this title. But I really enjoyed the fact that I got to hear already the, the sort of glowing review from Brad, but also the sort of resistant understanding from Kelly that really is going to balance out my approach to, to how I enjoy this book and also, you know, what my thoughts are during and after I read it. And I have both of you to thank for that. So you have my gratitude. Yeah. And I just want to add that Kelly, you're absolutely right. There's just so much oversaturation with Harley. It's just (laughs) going to get worse at BookCon. I swear every DC panel, it felt like they were announcing another black label Harley Quinn book. And I, you know, yeah. And, And I think one of the things that 
I maybe liked about Breaking Glass is that I was kind of going into it considering the intended audience, which was kind of your young, your YA crowd. And I think that they will eat it up. And maybe, you know, maybe that'll be one thing that can help bring people into comic shops. So um, considering that, I mean, I think that if you you do read it, I think that you need to kind of keep that in mind when reading it is the intended audience. So that's so before you do read it, guys, keep that in mind. I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a yeah. shot. Right. On, on that alone, I, I'll do it. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, with an appropriate lens in which to consider the viewing material, Brad, uh, again, thank you. And that's it, guys. We did it. Uh, we went through an impressive laundry list of stories, and we've come to our finale, which is a chance for me to let you know that DC Comics News is now on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So we're going to encourage you, I'm going to encourage you to head on over, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review, and leave a comment, tell a friend, you know, spread the word. If you're looking for the best ways to do it, keep in mind that on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. All you need is the at DC Comics News. Sometimes I spell it out. This time, I'm not going to because there's so much more to chat about. Most importantly to me is how do you get in touch with these great commentators, these great viewpoints that Brad and Kelly have expressed? Well, you can reach out to the people themselves, and I'm going to let Brad and Kelly tell you how to do that. Brad, how can the people find you, my friend? Uh, you can find my news and reviews at DC Comics News, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FlickyB1. Perfect. Kelly, how can the people find you? Uh, you can find my editorial pieces on DC Comics News, and I'm on Twitter at KelGainsWrite. Awesome. Just type my name, Seth, the last name Singleton, the word story into a search engine. You can find me that way. You can find me also doing reviews on DC Comics News. And once a week, in addition to the DC Comics News podcast, I also do something called the Spinner Rack, where I pick my top five picks from DC Comics each and every week. And if you think that's something that might interest you, go ahead and check it out. Let me know what you think. More importantly, however you find me, just tell me what you think or how you found me. I really feel like that's where some of the best conversation comes out of. And if you're looking for great conversation, I'm going to encourage you to always come back to the DC Comics News podcast. There are great things coming on the horizon. In fact, we've been giving you some teaser reminders. Steve J. Ray will be featuring up an in-depth look at Batman the Animated Series. That's going to be coming soon. If you don't want to miss out, I recommend using your favorite platform to subscribe. And then, of course, you know, do that rate review thing. But in the end, we're going to leave you with a message that we feel always gets more resonant with each repetition. And that is to always read more comics ladies and gentlemen this has been dc comics news podcast number 38 we appreciate you joining us we look forward to joining you next time and until then we'll see you soon